Our sermon today is taken from John 6, verse 16 to 21. This is the word of God. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had row about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Thus said the Lord. Thank you, Grace, for that. All right, guys. If you've been with us the past few weeks, then you know we're going through the book of John. And we are currently in chapter 6. Uh, last week, when we began in chapter 6, we saw Jesus doing a very popular miracle that many of us know of feeding 5,000 people. Really, it's more like 10,000 or 20,000 because the 5,000 only mentions uh, count, counting the men. Uh, he fed about 10 to 20,000 people by multiplying five loaves and two fishes. And as we studied last week, we saw that the point of the miracle is very often misunderstood. Often we make this miracle of Jesus multiplying the bread and the fish to feed the multitudes. Um, as God, as a being that is to meet our immediate needs. For example, he's here, he exists. His purpose is to give, give me immediate healing or financial security like he did with the crowd, right? He, he fed the crowd. That's the purpose of his existence. But then after you study the miracle more in depth or the passage more in depth, it was actually a form of rebuke that Jesus did towards the crowd and towards his disciples because they merely treated Jesus as a tool to relieve them from immediate physical problems. The crowd was, was so focused on their immediate needs. They're only interested in, in using Jesus as a means to an end, to heal them, to feed them, to free them from political slavery later we see in verse 15. All the while, they're blinded from the grand picture that Jesus was trying to communicate through the miracle. The grand picture of redemptive history, of sin, of salvation in Christ. And that's what he's actually here to do. He's not a miracle worker who's here to miraculously solve all our earthly problems. But he's God who has come in flesh to eternally save us from our sin. Now, there is a possibility after hearing last week's message or seeing the point of last week's passage that some of us might have left last week with a bit of anxiety or perhaps even a bit of resentment toward God. And I get that. I mean, last week's passage brings up a lot of questions. Questions like, if Jesus' main role or if God's main role is not to solve my immediate physical earthly needs, does that mean that I'm not going to find peace on earth and I'll only find peace when I get to heaven? If Jesus did not come here to solve my immediate earthly physical needs, but to ultimately solve my eternal need, does that mean that God doesn't care at all about the state of peace and joy that I have now on earth? Am I supposed to just bitterly on my own endure the hundreds of immediate problems I may have while I live on earth? which God cares nothing about until I die, right? And only then in, ha in heaven do I enjoy the benefits of Christ. Is that the application from last week? 
And unfortunately, it's so tempting to think that way. I think that way a lot. And often it's caused Christians to end up living in kind of an apathy. Uh, is that what Christians are about? Is that what our faith is about? Apathetically persevering through trouble until we reach heaven? No, it's far from it. And in our passage today, we'll see that God and Jesus is very much concerned about our current well-being, about the joy and gladness in the life we have now on earth today. And through our passage, we'll see that the benefits of this gladness and this joy in Christ is actually accessible to Christians prior to heaven, in our life now, on earth today. But at the same time, it's available to us in such a way that does not make God a mere tool to solve our immediate earthly problems. It's a joy found in God that can come even when he does not solve our earthly problems. How can this happen? Well, let's get into it. Three things. Point number one, when Christian joy can emerge. Point number two, when Christian joy develops. Point number three, when Christian joy is sealed. When Christian joy can emerge, how Christian joy develops, where Christian joy is sealed. Uh, pray with me, and then we'll begin in our first point. Father, we pray that you be kind and gracious to us as we study your word. Uh, we know that only the work of your spirit can make the words that you have in your scripture alive in our hearts. And Father, soften our hearts, let us hear it, uh, and that we may see you and and have your presence here with us through your revealed word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Point number one, when Christian joy is available. So the first point, I may do quite a bit of, I guess, teaching of the, of the passage, so bear with me, be patient with me, but then we'll, we'll get into how it actually uh, uh, is applicable to us. Okay, so let's begin with the passage. Verse 16 says, When evening came, his disciples went down to sea. So our, our passage starts with the evening of that day. And if you remember, earlier in that day, before evening, Jesus Christ performed this miracle that we studied last week of feeding the crowd. And the Jewish crowd that Jesus fed wanted to take Jesus by force at the end of it, if you read verse 15, and make him king. For what purpose? For the purpose of using Jesus to free them from a captivity of Rome. If you remember the Jews or Israel was under the captivity of Rome at the day, and at that point, um, uh, which is their biggest immediate earthly need, they wanted to make Jesus king so that Jesus can free them from that as well. But then you see in verse 15 last week that Jesus withdrew from them. He ran away from them as an act of rejection to their request, which was a form of rebuke. It's Jesus telling them, it's John telling the readers that Jesus is not here to miraculously solve our immediate physical problems. He's here to solve our eternal one. But this does not mean that he doesn't care about our earthly problems. Our passage today tells us that he cares deeply. And he longs for us to experience the peace and the gladness that's available in him. However, listen closely. He's not interested in giving us a peace that is caused by the absence of problems but rather a peace that is caused by the presence of a person. He's not interested in giving us a peace that is caused by the absence of problems, but a peace that is caused by the presence of a person. Our passage continues, verse 17. The disciples got into a boat, it says, 
and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now many questions here from verse 17. Why did the disciples randomly go to sea? Why did they get in a boat and cross the sea to Capernaum? That, that seems pretty random. And, and where is Jesus at this point? Well, the, the record of, of this event in our book, in, in the book of John, doesn't tell us all these details. But there are other books in the Bibles, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that records the story of Jesus' life. And Matthew and Mark actually records this very same miracle. And they give us a little bit more detail than John does. If you read Matthew uh, ver- uh, chapter 14, verse 22, um, it says, uh, after Jesus fed the crowd, Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. So you see, the reason why the disciples left wasn't some random thing. Jesus told them to. And then Matthew 14, verse 23, And after he dismissed the crowd that he just fed, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So where's Jesus at this point? He was praying in the mountains, alone. Maybe, most likely, for the crowd and for the disciples. So the disciples followed Jesus' words. They went to a boat to go to Capernaum, which was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, from where they were would have been 8 to 10 kilometers boat travel. They started on their journey. Then what happened? Verse 18 to 19. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. So during the travel, apparently a storm hit, which is a very common thing to happen in this particular sea. And in the middle of the sea, they saw something absolutely bizarre. They saw something, someone, walk on water. And it freaked them out. And it probably would have freaked us out too. If we saw something like that happen, imagine it. But their fear was only momentarily. They continued... Uh, We continue in verse 20. He, Jesus, said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Okay. So we've talked about the setting of the scene, verses 16 to 17. We talked about the stirring event or the rising action in the story, which is the storm in verse 18. Now let's move on to the two things in this passage that perhaps is most controversial and most popular. Verse 19. Jesus walking on water, verse 21, where the boat seemed to miraculously space traveled unto shore after Jesus appeared. All right? In order to understand what John is trying to say in the whole passage, I think it's, I think it's beneficial to first clarify these two things, which is so often misinterpreted in so many ways. Uh, let's just talk about the two ways it's most often misinterpreted. One, we rationalize it. Two, we mystify it. One way to mistake in this is to rationalize it. The second way is by uh, mystifying it. Let's talk about that. First, the mistake of rationalizing it. Many have said, well, Jesus didn't actually walk on water. What had happened was he was actually already standing on the other side of the shore. He was already at land, not on water. And the disciples were just so distracted by the storm that they actually didn't notice they were already near land on the other side. And the land was kind of covering, or, or, or the raging waters was kind of covering the land Jesus was on. So it looked like he was walking on water, but actually he was on land. And that's why afterwards they were immediately at land, right? Because they're already near land to begin with, where Jesus was standing. And, and that's why they're, they're immediately at land. And it kind of makes sense, but um, 
this misunderstanding is, is quickly dispelled by verse 19, where John intentionally mentioned the distance that the disciples traveled on boat. How long was it? Three to four miles. In kilometers, it'd be four to six kilometers. Now, if you remember earlier, I mentioned the distance between the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. It was eight to 10 kilometers. Google it, or I don't know, read a geography book on it. <laughs> it's eight to 10 kilometers. How far in sea does verse 19 say the disciples were in? Three to four miles, four to six kilometers. That means they were only halfway. They were nowhere near land. And John very intentionally mentioned the distance in verse 19. In Greek, it's not miles. It's 25 to 30 stadias, which equals to three to four miles. Very likely, why? To protect us from falling into this misunderstanding. He wanted to make clear, guys, he was on sea. He was on water. The second way to misunderstand it is by mystifying it. Okay. They, we, we, so verse 21 uh, it could often be misunderstood as, okay, we get it. Jesus was at sea. We're, we're this group that's for miracles. We like miracles. We're not scared by miracles. Jesus at sea. Uh, and this is what happened. When Jesus walked on the water and appeared to the disciples on the boat, um, Verse 21 says, immediately the boat was at land when Jesus approached them. That means the boat magically went into some kind of warp and space travel time and appeared at land like some scene from a Doctor Strange movie. But that's also not the case. Because if you read the same miracle recorded in Matthew and Mark earlier that we say other places in the Bible that records this miracle, you'll see many other things happen in the time that Jesus approached the disciples until they landed on shore. And if something as crazy as space warp happened, I feel like Matthew and Mark would have mentioned that too. But they didn't. So what's the explanation? Why did John leave out some details of what happened from when Jesus appeared to them to the point where they landed at shore? And just summarized it by saying, um, Jesus came, they were at shore. They landed safely at shore. It's not because he wanted to lie. It's not because he was lazier than Matthew and Mark and decided to record less details. Or because some kind of warp space-time happened. But he wanted to emphasize a point, and it is this, that the presence of Jesus was all that the disciples needed to be glad and to rave safely at shore. He wanted to make clear and emphasize the presence of Jesus, no other miracles, the presence of Jesus and the person of Jesus was all the disciples needed to be glad and to rave safely at shore, which shore here represents heaven, right? Our ultimate destination. What John is saying in verse 19 and 21, the presence of the person of Jesus in the middle of the storm is enough for the disciples to feel at peace and to be glad and eventually reach the safe haven of shore. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. Notice the circumstance of when the disciples felt this gladness and felt this joy. Two things. One, John doesn't tell us in the passage whether or not the storm has stopped. He didn't care about that detail. Why not? He's saying something really profound here. He's trying to say, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. The disciples were glad, regardless of whether the storm stopped or not. Why? Because availability of Christian joy is not dependent upon the absence of problems, but on the presence of a person. There exists such a peace offered to us in the person of Christ, 
which isn't affected by the presence or the absence of storms in our lives. It does not matter. Why not? Because Christian joy and gladness is not caused by the absence of problems, but by the presence of the Savior. But also notice, another thing John's trying to say about Christian joy. When was the disciples, where were they when they felt glad, verse 21 says? Was it after they reached shore? It was before. They were halfway there. They were in the middle of the journey. But for some reason, they already had this gladness, this joy. What's John trying to say now? He's saying Christian joy and gladness is not only available to us in heaven, at shore. We can have it now on earth, halfway through the journey, even before we land there. Christian gladness and Christian joy is available for the Christian, for those who are in Christ, before they can see a solution to their problems, i.e. in the middle of the storm, and before they're guaranteed security from every other future problem, i.e. before they reach heaven. That's profound. And we don't know whether or not the storm stopped. The disciples didn't know if the rest of the way there's going to be other storms in the future. It didn't matter. Jesus is there. See, last week's passage, we said Jesus Christ did not come to solve our immediate earthly problems. He's here to solve our eternal great problem of our sin and the eternal consequences of it. But our passage today clarifies this does not mean that God is fiddling with his thumbs, waiting as for us at shore until we get there. And until then, he doesn't really care about our immediate earthly problems that we have today. He has made his presence available to his people. And he has made himself to be known in such a way by his people on earth, now, today, in a way that can give them gladness, even in the midst of their current problems, even if he doesn't take away their problems, even in the wake of future anxieties and upcoming problems. But that's really vague, and it sounds really idealistic and so intangible. What does that mean? How can we know Christ in such a way that it gives us this kind of Gladness. Let's go to our second point. How Christian joy develops. Okay, so let's try our best to make this vague concept of Christian joy more tangible. How can we grow to having this kind of gladness that apparently is available for us in Christ today in the midst of our problems and in the midst of future uncertainties? Because to be honest, I don't feel like that much at all. I don't feel this kind of peace much at all. When I'm in the midst of trouble, all I, fe all I feel usually is fear. And when I see impending possible future problems, I'm filled with anxiety. How can I be partaker of this peace that the disciple had and have my fears and anxieties removed by the presence of Christ? Now, we've got to be very careful. It's not about removing our fears. It's not about deleting our anxieties. Our passage today tells us the first step of growth towards Christian peace is not by having our fears removed. It's by having our fears redirected. The first step to Christian peace is not by having our fears removed. It's by having it redirected. Look at verse 18, the end of it. The disciples, in the middle of a raging storm in the sea, but yet, in verse 20, what was it John described them being afraid of? They saw, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. At what? At the storm? No. At Jesus. They weren't afraid of the storm. They were afraid of Jesus. They realized 
whatever it was that was coming at them is stronger than the storm. This being that's coming at us is so strong that the storm and the waves with all its rage merely serves the purpose of washing the bottom of his feet. This being is the real deal. This is the first step of having Christian joy. Not to have your fears go away, but have them redirected to the proper place. God. Christ. But here's something very important to know. This being cannot be known to us just by our own senses. This is a big theme in our passage. It says this all-powerful, almighty being can only be known by us if he reveals himself to us through his words. The disciples could not recognize Jesus when they first saw him walk on water. All they saw was a being more powerful than the storm. All they saw was a being more dangerous and more untamable than the storm. If you read Matthew and Mark that records this event, you'll see that the disciples actually thought Jesus was a ghost when he first approached them. But then what happened in verse 20? This, this all-powerful being used what? Used human language, his word, to reveal himself to man. And only after the disciples took him at his word, heard his word, then they were glad. In other words... The disciples did not have this Christ-centered peace, this Christian gladness and joy, when they speculated on their own about who Jesus is apart from his word. The disciples, relying upon their own senses, relying upon their own faculties, do not have hope to truly understand who Jesus is and what is this peace that's available to them in Christ. And neither do we, neither does any man. John Calvin, a, a, an old reformer, uh, comments on our passage, and he said that if left to our own independent senses, apart from God's self-revelation through his word, human language, our interpretation of God will click quickly, like the disciples, form an idol for itself instead of seeing Christ. Independent from the word of God, if we try to understand God on our own, our own senses, it will quickly form an idol for itself instead of seeing Christ, like the disciples did. John is saying, if you want to have this Christian, Christ-centered peace, a peace that can emerge even in the midst of trouble, a peace that can emerge even with impending future problems before you, then first, you got to know who Christ is. And you can't do that when you speculate on your own, independently from the Word of God. So who is he? Let's move on. Who is he? Who does, who does God's Word tell us he is? Well, let, let's look at Jesus' words in verse 20. He said, it is I. Okay, without getting too much into it because we've talked about it in previous passages in the past in John, these words, it is I, reveal a whole lot about who, who Christ is and who God is. In the original Greek, Greek, it is I is ego eimi, which literally translates to I am. And John at, John at this point of the book has recorded Jesus saying ego eimi a lot of times already. Why is that significant? Because the words ego eimi or I am are the same words that God used in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 to describe himself to Moses. Do you remember the story? Moses was before he freed Israel. He didn't want to go back there because he was scared. And God told him to go and he said, who, who do I tell them sent me? And God said, I am. Jesus throughout the gospel of John repeats this. I am, I am, I am. 
This tells us a unique thing about the God of the Bible, about this all-powerful being, is that he has come to us in the person of Christ, and that Christ is the great I am. Friends, let me repeat uh, uh, the, point here of Christian, the, the point of Christian joy here one more time. Look at the disciples. Their gladness was not dependent on whether or not the storm ended. Their gladness did not come from Jesus giving them some kind of amazing solution to their problem or taking the problem away. Their anxieties was not eased by Jesus informing them of some kind of sea route to which they can in the future avoid future problems. They did not experience gladness after Jesus gave them some kind of futuristic sailing tool that's going to protect them from all other storms. Their gladness was simply caused by the presence of the great I am and his word. It is enough. Jesus says, this is who I am. I am the only God. I am the one who hovered over the waters when I created it in the first place in Genesis. I am the one who split the waters in Exodus. I am the one who Job chapter 9 verse 8 says has the power to tread and walk on waves. I am here. Friends, as you expose yourself to the word of God, God's self-revelation of who he is to man, you study the Bible. By God's grace, you will come to a conclusion of who God is. Not based on your own reasoning and speculations, but through his word. And you'll start to see him as what? As all-sovereign, an all-controlling, all-knowing, omnipresent, eternal, all-powerful being, everything we read in our statement of faith earlier. He is uncontrollable by you, he is free to roam as he pleases. He's untamable, not by any storm, not by any weapon, not even by your religiosity. He is all holy. He's meticulously righteous, which means that this all-powerful, uncontrollable being will not ignore any wrongdoings that we've done. But he will treat every single little sin as a personal offense towards his right and rule as the eternal creator and lawmaker of the universe. And scripture says, because of his justice, he cannot be unjust. He cannot be unrighteous. Sin must be dealt with. Someone must pay. And thus, this all-powerful, untamable, righteous being who treated the storm like a plaything will unleash his full wrath of righteousness and holy justice upon all who have sinned. Fear him. The first step towards Christ-centered peace is not to fear less, but it's to fear the right thing. Do you fear this being? Do you fear this God? We should. But then, Jesus says something even more profound, if that's possible. He does not only reveal himself as a great I am, as God, as being more powerful, more uncontrollable, unpredictable, and frankly, more dangerous than the storm. He very quickly follows it with the words, do not be afraid. Fearing God is just the first step. This alone is not enough to give us Christian joy, which brings us to our last point, where Christian joy is sealed. I can imagine the disciples at this point, seeing this being that's more powerful than the storm approach them, must have so many questions attached to their fears. Who is this being? What are his intentions? How will he use his power? Who am I to him? What is my fate now as merely human before this almighty being? 
questions that some of us may have here today. The storm at this point, I can imagine, became almost like white noise. <laughs> That's not their greatest concern anymore. Questions about the storm uh, is not their most urgent questions anymore. This being is coming toward us. What do we do? And the second their fears were directed to the right place, it is only then God continued his self-revelation to them. Now put yourself in their situation. Imagine what all they must have saw. You're in that boat. You're in the middle of that storm. Imagine them seeing this foreign, unknown being, stronger than the storm, coming to them close enough, and, and they're starting to get scared. But then as it comes closest, they slowly are able to discern his face. They slowly are able to discern who he is. And all of a sudden, they see this all-powerful, untamable being was their Jesus. And as they see the face of their Lord and Savior appearing, Jesus, at the same time, said the words, It is I. Do not be afraid. Because all of a sudden, when they saw his face in verse 21 and heard his words, Do not fear afraid, it says that they were glad, regardless of whether or not the storm ended, regardless of whether or not they were safe at shore. It doesn't matter. The billows may roll. Future storms may be lurking from every corner. It does not matter. He's here. They were glad. Why? How did the disciples experience this? Because they realized the second thing of Christian peace about this being. Not only that he's all-powerful, not only that he's to be feared above all things and more powerful over all things, but this all-powerful, uncontrollable, untamable being is for them and not against them. He is on their side. But how do they know that? I mean, we get how they can know the first part. It's obvious for them to be afraid. They saw this guy walk on water. It, it didn't scare him one bit, the storm. Of course, they, they were scared of this guy, but how can they know and trust so easily of the second thing? How can, they trust so, how can we trust so easily that this uncontrollable, all-powerful being who we've sinned against is on our team? Remember, at this point, I want to direct our minds to another storm in the Bible in which Jesus, the great I Am, also encountered but unlike the storm in our passage today, Jesus was consumed by this other storm. He was destroyed by it. He died in it. What storm am I talking about? The ultimate storm of God's wrath, the cross. Remember earlier I said, if we trust God's self-revelation about who he is through his word in the Bible, not with our own senses or, 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 or speculations, we will see that God has revealed himself to us in his word as holy, righteous, and just. Also, we will see that we've personally offended him by our disobedience and sin. And we, in our sin, before this God, have brewed for ourselves the ultimate storm of his wrath and justice. And this is the heart of our faith. This is, this is the heart of this passage. This is the gospel message. This is the message that our brothers and sisters in the faith throughout the years have died for. This is the message that the disciples we read about in this boat later eventually give their lives for. And it is this, that on the cross, 
God, the great I am, allowed himself to sink in the raging storm of his own justice so that sinners like us can safely arrive at shore. He paid for it. It is finished. On the cross, the great I am proves to us and seals our joy by saying, I, the greatest, most powerful, most uncontrollable, untamable being in the universe, I am on your side. So much so that I'm willing to die in order that you may live. I am. Do not be afraid. I don't know what storms you may have in your life as of now. Maybe you're in the middle of one right now, and perhaps it's a big one. Remember, there is a being who is much more powerful than it, who is in control over every small detail of it, and he's on your side. Now see, the gladness that the Christian will experience here is no longer dependent dependent upon the absence of the problem. God isn't saying, here I am more powerful than the storm, so I'm going to take away the storm for you so that you can be glad. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something more like this. Trust me. Although it may seem like this problem is greater than me, it's not. It's puny for me. Trust me. This storm exists not because I'm unable to control it, nor is it because I hate you. This storm is here to accomplish the purposes I have for your good and for the good of my people. And just like I used this storm to direct my disciples safely unto the shore, I will also use it to accomplish my purposes in you and eventually lead you securely to shore. You think my disciples rowed themselves to shore? They're panicking about 80% of the time. I use the storm to bring them to where they need to be. Trust me, it's here to sanctify you and grow you today, and it will not ever rob you from the ultimate deliverance I have solidified for you on the cross. And if you really trust in that, you won't be so concerned about asking me why the storm is here, but rather you'd be asking me how to remain faithful to me in the middle of it. Because I, the great I am, I'm on your side. Do not be afraid. Now, a few things before we end as a way of summary and perhaps clarifications or reminders. One, remember, him being on your side does not mean he's going to take the problem away from you. Remember, the disciples experienced this gladness regardless of whether or not the storm still existed, regardless of whether or not they knew of future storms. They were not sure yet. But true Christian peace appears when our problems, uh, does appear not when our problems are gone, but when the Savior appears. Christian peace is not about minimizing our problem. It's about knowing the Savior. Don't focus so much on wanting the problem to go away. It's okay to want it to go away. We're not bad people for wanting to go. I don't want, I don't want to have problems in my life. But that's not the vocal point for the Christian. The vocal point is focusing on knowing him more. How do you do that? Not by speculating with our own imaginations, but by his word, his revealed word, in which he has shown himself to us with human language in the Bible. Which leads us to our second clarification. This is a progressive growth. Look at the disciples. 
Is all this new information to them? No. They've heard it all throughout chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Over and over again. I'm the great I am, guys. I am, guys. It's me. But yet they forgot. And just before this, and when Jesus fed the, 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 the 10, 20,000 people, Jesus rebuked them for forgetting, being so focused on the physical realities, they forgot who he was. It's not an immediate thing. This isn't a magical sermon that you're going to go out and finally have this joy and peace. It's a progressive growth. It's slow. And it's painful, like any kind of growth is. Be patient with yourself. Be kind with yourself. God is. And trust Him. Number three, beg God that He will have mercy on you and that He'll send His Spirit to cause His words that you read in the Bible to actually be living and active in your heart. Because notice, at the end of the day, it's up to the Spirit's work through His Word. Remember, the disciples aren't the only ones who heard the words that Jesus is the great I am. Do you remember other people who heard the words Jesus say, I'm the great I am? The Pharisees. And they crucified him. Beg the Spirit that when you hear the words of God, it will be living and active in your lives. And you respond in a way that is submissive and joyfully obedient to him. Remember, God is untamable. Um, and, and you can't, you can't, you can't approach the Bible with 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 this uh, 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 deserving mentality. Like you, you can't, you can't read the Bible for thirty minutes in the morning and then go to God and say, "Hey God, you owe me thirty minutes of Christian peace now." You can't do that. He's untamable. He's uncontrollable. He doesn't owe us that. The only thing he owes us is eternal wrath, and he's paid for it on the cross. <laughs> Come to him humbly. Beg him that he would grow you and get to know him by his word. Lastly, don't think that the presence of storms in your life is a setback for you. It's so easy to, to think that. I agree with, with John Calvin here, and as if I'd tell you if I disagreed. <laughs> um, he said, so far as it relates to the disciples sailing, my opinion is that they did not go over so great a space by direct sailing, but through being driven about by the tempest. Calvin would say God had so much power over the storm, not only did he overpower it, but he even used it to accomplish his will and his people. Storms is not setbacks in your life. Encountering problems in your life isn't necessarily holdback. It may be holding back us from our goals, but it never holds back God from his goal of growing his people according to his eternal wisdom and his counsel and will. Let's end here. Christian, only when your fear is rightly directed to the scariest being in the universe and only when you see that this being is willing to die so that you may live, only then will you have peace because you'll realize that you have the most powerful being as your father and true peace will emerge not by using him as a tool to take away your problems, but by falling into deep trust and worship that his will is superior than mine and his love for me is greater than my own. Come what may, help me, God, to trust and obey. Let me end uh, with another quote from John Calvin, uh, since we've quoted him so much in this sermon. Before we pray and before we sing to our almighty and all-loving God. For those who see this, who knows that Christ is given to them 
to make payment for their sins. As soon as they hear his name, which is a sure pledge to them of both love and God's salvation for them, they take courage as if they have been raised from death to life. They calmly look at the clear sky, dwell quietly on earth, and being victorious over the ultimate and therefore over all calamity, they take him for their shield against all dangers. Let's pray. Father, what an untamable, uncontrollable, all-powerful God you are. A God who can't be tamed by the storm, a God who can't be tamed by any man, a God that can't be tamed by our moralism, by our religiosity. We don't get to read the Bible, go to church, give our money, and demand from you something in return. But you are a God who is free to do as he chooses. And Father, we beg you that you would help us grow of our trust in you, that although you may seem untamable at times, you may seem uncontrollable at times, whatever storm you may choose to direct us to and use to work in us for our good and for the good of your people, that you are enough. And Father, make our hearts more worried, more concerned about obeying you in the midst of the storm rather than you taking it away. Because we know the great I am, the most powerful being in the universe, is on our team. And on the cross, he solidified that. Let us receive it. Let us rest in it. Because your blood is the only way in that, which, in that which we can have this assurance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.